Uh, Please open your Bibles to James uh, chapter 2. Our passage for this morning is James 2, 1 to 13. Again, that's James 2, 1 to 13. I'd imagine we're all probably humbled by the thought of judgment. That can be judgment in the sense of eternal judgment or even just judgment by human courts. Either way, there's something about the idea of having your thoughts and actions brought under examination and weighed as either lawful or unlawful, as either worthy or unworthy, that obviously obviously makes you feel very humble. I mean, to have your future placed into the hands of someone with the authority to decide your fate, either by declaring you just or unjust, I would imagine that can make you feel very powerless, very small. And yet, as humbling as that kind of judgment can be, there's another kind of judgment that we find in Scripture, which I think can be almost more humbling when you stop to consider what it says. And it's described in 1 Corinthians 6. Speaking of how the church ought to handle disagreements among believers, the Apostle Paul says this, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your, sin, to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Uh, the basic sense of this passage is fairly plain. Paul is is more or less urging believers to refrain from bringing lawsuits against one another. He's saying that the types of disputes that might normally find their way into the secular legal system should instead be handled in-house before the church. Now, depending on your church background, I'd imagine that might sound kind of weird. I'd gather that most Christians today would think it very bizarre to settle a dispute about a a real estate transaction gone wrong or something like that before a, a church tribunal rather than a court system. But this is actually how the Jews tended to handle things. I've said before over the past several weeks, freedom for them meant being able to live according to their standard of law rather than by the laws imposed on them by the Babylonians and the Romans. It wasn't freedom from the law that they saw, but the freedom of self governance. And so the way they expressed this was by having disputes among fellow Jews settled internally uh, before the synagogues, according to the law of Moses, as much as possible, rather than to bring it into the secular courts. You actually see this played out several times in the New Testament. Jesus, for instance, was first tried before the Sanhedrin. And only then, after he was found guilty there, did the religious leaders bring the matter before Pilate, since Roman law didn't permit them to enforce capital offenses. Well, Paul envisions this same kind of relationship between the church and the state. He pictured the church trying to handle their disputes internally as much as possible, at least as much as the law would allow. And in this passage, Paul gives two reasons why it should happen this way. He says, number one, that the church is actually better equipped to judge disputes among believers than the secular courts. And then number two, he says that it actually disgraces the name of Christ to bring disputes among brothers before unbelievers. That's partly due to the first reason. I mean, believers should have the wisdom to settle these disputes, and the fact that they can't indicates to the world that we don't really have anything that we can proclaim to them in terms of wisdom. And that's also partly due to the fact that when believers bring their cases before unbelievers... They not only undermine the gospel through their disunity with one another and their bitterness, but they also place the unbeliever in judgment over the believer. 
which obviously contradicts what the gospel says about the relationship between God and the world. The world doesn't stand in judgment over God. God stands in judgment over them, so it doesn't make any sense for believers to deliver themselves under the judgment of unbelievers to settle their disputes rather than God, since that undermines the gospel. Anyways, as Paul describes all of this, he makes a statement that should catch your attention and, I think, humble you if you stop to think about it. Verses 2 to 3. He says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Now, I I don't know about you, but as humbling as I think it is to think that I will one day stand in judgment before Christ, I think it's perhaps even more humbling to think that one day angels will stand in judgment before me. Do you realize that this is what this passage is saying? I, I spoke about this a few weeks back when we were studying the meaning of Jesus' words in John 5 and John 14. In John 14, Jesus tells the disciples that whoever believes in Him will do greater works than what He has done. And you may wonder what kind of works that could possibly be, considering all that Jesus said and did during His ministry. The answer, it would seem, goes back to John 5, when Jesus says, The Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these He will show Him so that you may marvel. In context, Jesus says that with reference to His own ability to raise and judge the dead. And so the ability to judge is apparently the greater works that Jesus has in store for the disciples. And that appears to be what Paul is saying here as well. Well, Christians will participate along with Christ in the judgment of the world, even including the judgment of angels. So how does that make you feel? I'll tell you how that makes me feel. (laughs) And, And that's incredibly sheepish. I mean, could you imagine what it would be like for a murderer to be pardoned and then to be asked by the judge to come up and sit beside him and stand in judgment over other murderers. Can you imagine what that murderer might feel when the judge turns to him and says, now I want you to render a verdict here on this murderer. What do you think he deserves? I mean, can you picture that? and What that person might feel like? Well, our judgment of the angels is kind of like that. I mean, think about it. Here's this magnificently beautiful, even powerful creature standing before you. It's a creature so magnificent that the Scripture gives accounts of very righteous men trying to worship creatures like it when they've seen one. And is presumably standing before you, knowing of what sort you are and what kinds of sins you've done, awaiting your decision, your judgment. Now tell me, how do you think you would feel in that kind of a situation? I mean, standing where I am today on this side of heaven, it makes me feel like a total hypocrite. I feel like I would have trouble meeting eyes with the angel in that kind of a situation. After all, the kinds of sins that I've done, who am I to go and condemn any other being to an eternity in hell for their sins? This is why I say this kind of judgment is perhaps a more humbling one to think about than even the judgment we'll experience before Christ. Yes, it's humbling to think of having our sins laid bare before Christ, but at least the order of that judgment is appropriate and just. There's there's nothing really shameful about being held to account by the Lamb, right? For He alone is worthy of that honor. But for me to stand in judgment over someone else, when I'm not really worthy of that, and and neither are you, and, and we know it, that's what makes it so humbling. I want to be clear here. I don't think that's what we'll actually feel in this situation. I don't think we'll be timid in our judgment when that time comes. I don't think we'll feel shame. After all, if I stop to ask myself, why has God set it up this way for us to participate in the judgment of angels, I would think the reason has to go back to Christ. You see, these angelic beings, you have to remember that they've played an active role in the fall of mankind. Man sinned in Genesis 3, and when he sinned, the image of God was tarnished. That fall was initiated by Satan's temptation of Eve, and God is now working to counteract the fall and redeem the image that was marred through this temptation and sin. 
Well, you go back to Genesis 3, and God says that the woman's seed will crush the head of the serpent. That's a reference to the Messiah, of course. God's saying that in the act of this image restoration, the Messiah is going to triumph over Satan and his co-conspirators. So think about it. What better way is there then for Jesus to demonstrate his triumph over Satan? What better way is there for God to demonstrate that he has managed to thwart Satan's attack on his name than for restored humanity to stand in judgment over these fallen angels? It's the ultimate triumph, right? I mean, Christ's sacrifice is so entirely sufficient to blot out our sin that we will be able to possess this authority without there being any apparent hypocrisy in the endeavor. These fallen angels will be able to say nothing about our qualification to judge them because the blood of Christ so completely qualifies us to do it. We are completely holy through His blood. Again, it's the ultimate triumph. It demonstrates that Christ has completed His work. He's triumphed over their schemes. Fallen man has been restored to his rightful place of authority. So no, I don't think we'll actually feel shame when we stand in judgment over these angels because the blood of Christ will make us bold. But all the same, if you can get a sense of why you might feel ashamed to stand in judgment before an angel, then I think you can begin to grasp the meaning of today's passage, which is Judges 2, 1-13. to This morning's passage concerns the sin of partiality. Partiality, of course, refers to bias, usually an unfair bias. It's the kind of thing that might occur when a coach plays his son or daughter before the other kids, and not because they're a better athlete, but because he loves them in a way that's unique from the other children on the team. It's the sort of thing that might happen when the the interviewer learns that a job applicant went to their alma mater or was a member of their fraternity or sorority, or even grew up in their hometown, and immediately pushes them to the top of the list of candidates. I'd imagine that not only have we all at one time or another been on the receiving end of this kind of favoritism, but perhaps even more often than not, we've been the victims of this kind of thinking. So you know what it's like to be on the outside looking in in this scenario. You know the pain of having something you want, something that matters to you, suddenly ripped away, and not on the basis of merit, but on the basis of of some irrational and unfair bias. And because you've experienced this, I'd imagine you're familiar with the injustice of this sort of prejudice. You felt the hurt that arises out of this unfairness. And so you probably are not surprised to hear that the Bible called this practice of partiality among Christians a sin. But I, under, I wonder if you understand why partiality is a sin. The truth is, as painful as partiality can be, I doubt very many people would think it to be a very serious sin. All in all, we tend to reserve our notion of really serious sins to the more blatant and obvious violations of Scripture, things like theft and murder and adultery. That's the really bad stuff, we think. And yet as we come to the New Testament, time and time again, we find Jesus and the apostles indicating that it's actually the more seemingly minor infractions that we really need to watch out for. In the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, Jesus says that it isn't murder, That's the problem. So much as it is anger. It's not just adultery that condemns us, but lust. Now, of course, when Jesus says this, clearly he's not meaning to nullify these more blatant transgressions of the law. He's saying, he's not saying that they don't matter, that it's okay to murder or to commit adultery. He's just saying that we shouldn't pay attention to these major offenses, to the neglect of the seemingly less serious expressions of sin. In other words, he doesn't lower the bar of righteousness. If anything, he raises it. In fact, he even goes so far as to say that something is seemingly minor as the refusal to forgive is punishable by an eternity in hell. That's something that's very different than what the scribes and Pharisees taught. The scribes and Pharisees taught that all the things that a person shouldn't do, here's all the stuff they shouldn't do, but Jesus goes beyond that and he says, actually, it's not just about what you shouldn't do. It's about what you should do as well. If you don't do things, the types of things that God commands, things like forgive one another, then you'll be handed over to the torturers and punished until you've paid the very last cent of your debt. 
Now, this, this can throw us for a loop, again, because we understand that salvation is by grace through faith, right? So how can Jesus say that we'll suffer in hell for something as seemingly insignificant as the inability to forgive those who've sinned against us? Well, the reason, James explains, is because of what, of what these kinds of sins reveal about us. This is what we've been studying together over the past several weeks. James compares the man who doesn't do the word to someone who looks at his face in a mirror and then immediately forgets who he is. The idea is that the gospel so, so shapes our identity before those around us that it will actually transform the way we live. In other words, there's a, a set of obligations that flow out of the gospel, and these obligations are founded and shaped by our new identity that we've received in Christ. One such obligation is forgiveness. Again, the reason why you might have trouble staring an angel in the eye and saying you're guilty is because when you believe the gospel, it changed the way you see your own righteousness. Your belief in that message means that you know that you're guilty and deserving of death. And so you have a really hard time condemning someone else for the same sins that you commit, since that act of judgment only serves as a kind of mirror that reflects back upon your own sins and your own condemnation. You feel shame because your judgment actually condemns you. It's like what we see with the adulterous woman in John 8. Jesus says, let the one who has no sin cast the first stone. And the realization that no one fits that bill, that no one has the authority to judge because they're all just as guilty as her, causes them all one by one to drop their stones and go home. That's what the Christian realizes as well. Their consciousness of their own guilt makes it difficult for them to condemn others for their sins since they know that such condemnation would only reveal that they too are unworthy and deserving of judgment. Now again, I would say that this feeling of guilt can actually be due in part to some smudges in our gospel mirror. It may be that we feel this way because our conscience has not yet been fully cleansed by the gospel as it should be, and and so we still feel guilty at times when we should not. And, And those smudges are going to be completely erased in the day of Christ's coming, such that we will be able to stand before the throne of God with full and complete confidence. But all the same, that's a very normal and natural response for a sinner who's been made aware of their sin. In fact, this is why we're commanded to forgive one another. It's because it is just, meaning it is, it is seemly, it is right, that those who have received grace to in the same way demonstrate grace towards others. And conversely, it is unjust, inequitable, for those who have received grace to then turn around and refuse it to others when they're in need of the same. Like, that's not true to do that. That's not right to do that. It is a disproportionate response. It's, it's unequal. It's unjust to receive mercy in one breath and then to turn around and refuse it to another in the next. And so the one who fails to forgive, the thing that you have to question about them is, have they ever received the gospel in the first place? At the very least, you have to say that the gospel is not present in their mind currently, that they've at least forgotten it, because there's no way that a person can be so harsh to someone for their little debt when they've been made aware of their great debt and forgiven of it by God. This is why Jesus says that these seemingly small infractions can result in eternal punishment. It's not because our, our, our ability to forgive or to forsake lust or something like that merits or produces salvation or something like that. They're not the requirement for salvation. No, rather they're the requirements of salvation. They're obligations that naturally flow out of our new identity in Christ. And so the one who does not do, even these seemingly minor obligations... It's a reflection of the fact that they may not believe. Keep in mind, sin is an internal problem. Like James told us back in chapter 1, like Jesus says in Mark 7, sin doesn't come from the outside. We're never forced to sin. No, sin rather comes from the inside. It's an expression of our own desires. And so the person who doesn't forgive, it shows that inside they're still corrupt. They've not yet been transformed by their belief in the gospel. It points back to the fact that they have not put on this new identity in Christ. So the one who does not do, 
They'll be condemned, not simply because of what they do, but because of who they are. Their failure to do reflects that they are not actually believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's this relationship between identity and obligation, indicative and imperative, that makes this seemingly small sins such a very big deal. And it's also why, after talking about the relationship between knowing and doing, that the very first sin that James addresses in the church is the sin of partiality. Again, you may not think of this to be a very big sin. It doesn't seem as serious as something like murder. And yet, by the end of today's passage, James will say that the one who does not repent of this sin, the sin of partiality, they will be condemned to the same sentence as the murderer. And why is this so? Well, it's because, as James is going to show us, the one who shows partiality, they have not been sufficiently transformed by the gospel. In other words, they'll be condemned not for their lack of works per se, but for their lack of faith. There is an inconsistency between partiality and the gospel such that the one who commits this sin, either they've forgotten who they are or perhaps they've never even believed in the gospel in the first place. So how does this work? Let's go ahead and see what James has to say. James 2, 1-13. He writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you commit adultery, but do not murder, I'm sorry, but uh, but do murder, uh, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There are many ways that Christians can show partiality in the church. Uh, Church leaders, for instance, uh, can be tempted to view uh, the successful business owner, the, the community leader, as automatic elder material. Due simply to their success in business or due to their status in the community, Uh, rather than because of their spiritual qualifications. As they build the church, church leaders may become more prone to target the supposedly more desirable members of the community. You know, the the single mid-twenties professional, the the families with young children, the the middle class and the well-to-do, the ones who appear to live a life that's relatively clean and morally pure, rather than to pursue the less desirable members of the community. And they'll actually do this because they understand the biases of the average Christian. Unfortunately, today, when many Christians walk into a church filled with the elderly or the poor or the socially awkward, they'll say to themselves, I don't want to spend, I don't want to spend time here among these people. And turn around and walk out. You see, it's not just the leaders that show partiality. Fact is, many times leaders will demonstrate partiality because they understand the biases of the common Christian. And rather than rebuke those biases, they'll try to work with them in order to build their church. So the socially desirable, these people get prioritized attention, while the socially undesirable do not. It isn't the spiritual distinction that drives the the, uh, spiritual qualifications that drive the distinctions, but merely the physical and the external. If you think you're not 
that you don't do this, that you're not guilty of this, I'd encourage you to examine yourself. Watch your reaction, for example, to visitors. Know which kind of people you rush to greet immediately after the service and who you sort of just get around to greeting eventually. You might be surprised what you find. The fact is we all struggle with this sin, uh, probably far more than we'd like to admit. Just as it is with the world, there are all kinds of differences that Christians will use to discriminate among one another. Uh, It can be age, sex, race, nationality, education, physical appearance. In today's passage, the category is money. And the context, apparently, is a court case. Over the past few weeks, I explained that the law of Moses was Israel's law of liberty. It was a system of laws that Israel wanted to live by, and it was founded upon and formed by the people's identity as a nation of former slaves. Well, as God told the people how they were to administer justice in this new system of laws, he says, Leviticus 19, verse 15, He says, you shall do no injustice in the court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Uh, Leviticus 19, incidentally, is probably one of the more influential passages on this letter that James writes. Uh, Scholars will often say that James is an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. And there's probably a measure of truth to that. Much of what James says here is tied back to what he heard his brother teach regarding the law. But remember, what Jesus taught about the law actually went back to the Old Testament. And that's what we see James doing here in this epistle with Leviticus 19 as well. Uh, Leviticus 19, 9-10, for instance, talks about caring for the poor and the sojourner, which James just discussed at the end of chapter 1, and which he will discuss again in next week's passage. In verses 17 to 18, it speaks of not despising your brothers, which are subjects that James will get to in chapters 3 and 4. In verses 11 to 14, it speaks of not stealing and of not swearing falsely and of not withholding wages from the laborer. James will address that in chapter 5. Basically, the entire content of the core of this book, at least the content of this book from the end of chapter 1 through the middle of chapter 5, is all contained in summary form. In Leviticus 19, 9 to 13. James is just filling it out. He's just explaining it. So if you want to memorize the teaching of James, but you don't have the time, uh, just go and memorize Leviticus 19, 9 to 13. Because it's more or less just an abbreviated form of this epistle. Anyways, in today's passage, the subject is partiality. As God said in Leviticus 19, 15, Israel is to show no partiality in the execution of judgment. God gives a similar command in Deuteronomy 16, 18-20, when through Moses he says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In both cases, Leviticus 19, uh, Deuteronomy 16, the the reason for this prescription, to show no partiality, it seems to do less with the nation's identity as a freed people and more with the identity of the one to whom they've been delivered to. They are to be just because the God they've been called to serve is just. He hates iniquity. And he looks not on the outward appearance, but on the heart. In today's passage, James envisions this same kind of setting. It's like I said, that the Jews would often go to the synagogues to administer justice rather than to the secular courts because they acknowledged the law of Moses to be their standard of righteousness, not the law of the Romans. Moses was their law of liberty. Well, James is anticipating this same sort of scenario in the church here in verses 1 to 13. And we know this not only because of the similarity between this passage in Leviticus 19, but for several other reasons as well. Uh, For example, in verse 2, the word for assembly is actually the word synagogue in the Greek. And as one commentator notes, this is the only place 
in the New Testament where this specific term is used for gatherings of Jesus' followers. Jesus' followers don't gather in the synagogue. So this is probably not a reference to an actual Jewish synagogue, since it's hard to imagine that a group, let alone even multiple groups, of Jewish Christians in control of a local synagogue. So this is probably a Christian assembly, but nowhere else in the New Testament is the Christian assembly referred to as the synagogue. Even James himself, later in chapter 5, verse 14, speaks of the ecclesia, the assembly or the church, in the context of the Christian worship gathering. So it seems that he's probably using this term here, synagogue, as a more technical term that refers to a Christian tribunal rather than a Christian worship service. This would put a new spin, by the way, on the law of liberty that we were discussing back at the end of chapter 1. James is talking there about the standard of righteousness by which we actually judge one another, even in a 1 Corinthians 6 kind of context. This is further confirmed by the terms that James uses throughout this passage. Uh, The words for make distinctions, for instance, and judges in verse 4, they share the same verbal root. The word krino, which means to judge. Likewise, in verse 6, James speaks of the rich dragging the Christian into court, which is, once again, a derivative of this word for judgment. It's criteria. You can probably get a sense of that word krino by how it's made its way into our language today in the, word, in the use of the word criteria, right? which is a form of the word criterion, which means a means of standard or judgment. That's the sort of language that James is using throughout this passage. So it would seem that James is envisioning a situation wherein two believers have met with the church in order to resolve a disagreement with one another. Perhaps this even has to do with the, the one believer's uh, failure to pay the other one's wages, as we see in chapter 5. And as these believers meet before the tribunal, the leaders are saying to the rich man, here, you sit up here in the nice place with us. And then when the poor man walks in, they say, you know what, why don't you go sit over here down by my feet? <laughs> I mean, clearly, you can tell right from the start, this is not going to be a very fair tribunal, right? And so as James begins this passage, he repeats the command that would have been a very familiar command to the Jewish Christian in this context. He says, my brothers show no partiality. The only difference is that now as he he starts to tweak this command by setting it in a Christian context saying, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And this is going to sound minor, guys, I'll warn you, but it's, it's probably better to translate that phrase not as the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, but rather as the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're to show no partiality as they hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning this is a reference not so much to the object of our faith, but rather the source of it. This is a faith that comes from Jesus. And again, I know that sounds subtle, but it's significant because it signals the fact that James is about to get a very, give a very different sort of reasoning for impartiality than what was provided in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was the character of God that demanded an impartial judgment. But for the Christian, it is the faith of Jesus Christ. Meaning it's the faith taught by Jesus. The standard of righteousness Declared by Jesus. What's referred to in verse 8 as the royal law. That's what demands this sort of impartiality. And that's a reference once again to the gospel. It isn't just the character of God. But our very identity in Christ by virtue of the gospel. That demands that we be impartial in our judgments of one another. So how then is impartiality inconsistent with the gospel? Very briefly, here are the three reasons that James provides. I think now that we grasp the, con- the context for this passage, these three reasons should be fairly easy to grasp. I'm going to list these in the form of three contradictions. And these three contradictions, they're applicable in a variety of settings. Yes, they apply to the church leader, for instance who's hearing a dispute between two believers, perhaps in a Matthew 18 context. 
Again, it can be tempting for the church leader in that scenario to want to defer to the biggest donor, right? Since confronting their sin may result in a loss of some income for the church. But this principle is just as applicable to the one who tries to win one type of unbeliever, to the more more undesirable type, rather than to the other. So use your imagination here. Consider all the ways that we can show partiality towards others on the basis of their outward appearance rather than by the heart. And consider what James says here in these three contradictions. Contradiction number one. Partiality is wrong because partiality contradicts our position before one another. It contradicts our position before one another. We see this in verses 2 to 4. James urges us to show no partiality, and then he explains in verses 2 to 4, saying, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and say, You sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? I've already explained the scenario that James envisions in verses 2 to 3 when he speaks of the rich man being told to sit in one place and the poor man being told to sit in another. Uh, The setting is a Christian tribunal and the rich is being given preferential treatment over the poor brother. I should probably note that by the way James states this, this does appear to be a purely hypothetical scenario. There's nothing in this passage that would seem to indicate that this sort of thing was actually happening in the church at this time. Uh, But the church is apparently struggling with some type of partiality, and this court setting becomes the scenario through which James can illustrate the impropriety of this kind of action. The explanation for this error comes out in verse 4. When James says that when this type of thing happens, quote, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Uh, The reasoning here goes up to what James was saying about the law of liberty back in verses 22 to 27 of chapter 1. The law of liberty proclaims certain truths about Christians, truths which should dictate how we live and how we treat one another. And whenever we don't act in a way that's consistent with these truths, we become like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror and then walks away and immediately forgets what he's like. Chief among these truths is the fact that, according to the gospel, we are all equal in Christ. After all, the gospel proclaims, right, that we are not saved by our own wisdom, or according to our own righteousness, but according to the righteousness of Christ alone. And and this faith, as Paul explains in Ephesians 2.8, is not of our own doing, it's the gift of God. In other words, God's love for us is based on nothing that we have done in any way. There's nothing that we bring to the table that merits His choice of us in divine election. Not our righteousness, not our intelligence, not our wealth or social status, not our skills or abilities. Salvation is completely and entirely of grace for each and every one of us. And this means that we all enter into the kingdom of God on the same terms. God doesn't see one Christian as better than another because the only basis by which He accepts any of us is by the finished work of Christ and His imputed righteousness. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.9, salvation is, quote, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We all have absolutely nothing that we can claim before God that distinguishes us or makes us better before God than any of our brothers or sisters because we are all saved by grace. Right? We are all poor in spirit, but rich in grace. We are all spiritually bankrupt, and yet possessing of a very great and immeasurably rich inheritance by virtue of our union with Christ. The fact that we stand on this common foundation should mean that we regard one another as more or less equals. As Paul says in Galatians 3, 25-29, he says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, but in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. 
This is how God regards us. We are all in Christ. We are all clothed with His righteousness. And so when God sees us, all of us, He regards us all according to the perfect standing that we receive in Christ Jesus. As Paul says in Colossians 3.11, For there is not, not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And as he says again in 2 Corinthians 5, 16-17, For now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Now, of course, I should probably note that this isn't to say that there isn't a kind of hierarchy that can exist in the church. Uh, the distinction between male and female, for instance, as it relates to the order of the home or the church still stands, as Paul explains in other passages. Likewise, elders and deacons may exercise a different kind of authority in church matters than what you find among the, the lay person in the church. But all the same, the point still stands. A man should not be regarded as more important than a woman, right, in the church, simply because he's a man. Nor an adult, more important than a child. Nor a city mayor, than the guy stocking shelves at Walmart. Because we're all one in Christ. We all stand together before God on the basis of His righteousness alone. Well, if that's the case, then what's happening? When we start making distinctions among one another, what happen, what's happening when we start to prioritize the thoughts or opinions of those in the church who are more desirable socially, for instance, not on the basis of their merit, but simply due to the fact that we want to make those kinds of people happy? James tells us in verse 4, he says that when this happens, we reveal ourselves to be judges with evil motives. After all, if the Scripture says that spiritually speaking we are all equal, then what does that demonstrate about our motives when we start making distinctions? It demonstrates that they're being driven not according to the wisdom that's from above, right? James tells us in James 3.17 that the wisdom that's from above is open to reason, impartial, and sincere. So our motives are not being driven according to the wisdom that comes down from above. Our motives are driven, rather, by the wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It's a wisdom that's driven only by what we see. It's it's driven by the things that we want here and now, not the principles that are shaped by eternity. We want earthly success. We want temporal blessing. We want to be accepted in the here and now because of the things that we can receive in this life. And so we judge according to the things that bring that sort of immediate payoff. Can you guys see that? That shouldn't be very hard to recognize. I mean, if the rich don't have a preferred status in heaven, then why should the the Christian give them a preferred status in the church? Why would they do that? It's because they're preferred, it's because of their preferred status here on this earth. In short, they want to get something from the rich person. They're not interested in truth or justice. They want the money that the wealthy can bring to them. Or the respectability. That's very clearly an evil motive. To pervert the truth for the sake of personal gain. There's nothing righteous in that. It's evil. And so the one who shows this kind of bias, and again, that can be on the basis of money or or any other socially desirable characteristic, that contradicts what the gospel declares about our position before one another. We are equals in Christ. And so if we're making distinctions among one another regarding one Christian is more important than another, then it can only come from evil motives. Consider this as you reflect upon the way that you show favoritism towards one type of Christian over another. What is the motive that's driving your discrimination? And does it align with what the gospel says about you and your brother or sister? Contradiction number two. Partiality is wrong because partiality contradicts our position before the world. It contradicts our position before the world. So it doesn't just contradict our position before one another, it contradicts our position before the world. We see this in verses 5 to 7. James says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world 
to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Of the three contradictions that James provides here, this is the only one that seems to come as much from experience as it does from theology. That's not to say that there isn't a theological component to this passage, these verses. There is. Uh, The major point in these verses is that the socially desirable uh, actually tend to be opposed to the Christian. Like, we're not on the same team, exactly. And yet we still tend to prefer them over the lowly. That doesn't make sense. There's a theological component to that argument. James says, verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? The idea of rich there doesn't seem to refer to the amount of the poor person's faith, that they're being rich in faith, as if poor Christians tend to be more faithful than wealthy ones. The reference, rather, is to the fact that God tends to grant faith to the poor and the lowly of our society more frequently than He does to the rich. It's the same point that Jesus made when the disciples tried to prevent parents from bothering Jesus with their children. They didn't think that children were worthy of Jesus' time. And Jesus rebuked them by saying, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew follows up that encounter, by the way, with the story of the rich young ruler. After which Jesus explains that it's harder for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. The point there, of course, is not that the rich cannot enter heaven, but rather that their riches do not possess the kind of advantages before God that the disciples think they do. They're not better off for their riches. Because again, God doesn't look at outward appearance, but on the heart. He is a righteous judge without partiality who judges us all according to the same standards. Regarding this apparent prevalence of faith among the poor, the Apostle Paul notes in 1 Corinthians 1.26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So the scenario that, James, that, that Jesus predicted, the scenario that James describes here in verse 4, it certainly appears to have been a reality in the Corinthian church as well. In verses 27 to 28, Paul explains why this is so. He says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, there is a kind of preference that God has for the poor and the lowly. As James says, God has chosen them to be rich in faith. But the reason for this choice stems not from the the fact that the poor are better in God's eyes than the rich, but rather because the poor enable a better demonstration of the fact that salvation occurs not according to any human wisdom or merit, but according to the grace of God alone. Theologically speaking, this means that to show preference for the high in society is to actually set oneself in a kind of opposition to God. God has determined determined to display His glory by spreading His kingdom through the less desirable parts of society, all the while the Christian is giving preference to the high. That doesn't make sense. It's a contradiction to the church's true status in the world as outcasts. And this isn't just true theologically, but experientially. That's because as God has chosen the low in society to be rich in faith, it means that the church has most often suffered rejection and persecution from the very kinds of classes that they're so often eager to impress. James points this out in verse 6. He says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? This was true of the early church, who was very often accepted by the lower rungs of society and oppressed by the ruling classes first in Israel and then in Rome. And it's true today as well. I mean, guys, isn't it the cultural elite who mock Christians, right? They're not the ones who are kind to Christians. You look at the media, for instance, and they never seem to portray Christians in a good light. They're always the very first to slander us or to exaggerate the very worst examples of our faith. It's the academics and the intellectuals that are very often the first to mock us for the foolishness of our faith. 
And yet so many Christians seem to want to bend over backwards to impress these same kinds of people. They want to prove to the very level of society that rejects us the most and the hardest that we're not what they maliciously say we are. And unfortunately, they'll do this very often by disassociating themselves from the very classes that do want to listen to us and consider what we have to offer. You know, I think of it, it's like you and you were in middle school or high school, and you try to disassociate from your family, you know, your little siblings and your parents, all who offered you unconditional love, only to try to impress the sort of people whose opinion of you was the most fickle. That's very often how Christians can act in relation to the world. And James points out, this is stupid. This is dumb. It's not only a kind of contradiction theologically, but it doesn't make any sense practically. Yes, God does say that we should love our enemies, but he most definitely does not say that we should prefer them over our brothers and sisters. As Paul says in Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We should love our enemies, but even more so, we should love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So once again, I'd urge you to consider this point as you reflect upon the way you show favoritism towards one type of Christian or another. Where is the wisdom and the desires that are driving your discrimination? And does it align with what the Scripture says about God's purposes in the Gospel? Let's move on, finally, to contradiction number three. Partiality is wrong. Because partiality contradicts our position before God. So once again, partiality contradicts our position before one another. It contradicts our position before the world. And now finally, it contradicts our position before God. We see this in verses 8 to 13. James says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So once again, we see James refer uh, to uh, return to the matter of the law. Two times we see him refer to a, a type of law in these verses. There's the royal law in verse 8, and then there's the law of liberty uh, coming up once again in verse 12. Both of these references once again appear to be a reference to the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we saw back in verse 4. It's the faith that flows out of Jesus Christ, the standards and commands that flow out of his message and teaching. That's why James refers to this standard as the royal law in verse 8. It's the prescriptions that have been delivered by the great King, God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Once again, this command goes back to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus, you will recall, stated that this command essentially summarized the entire teaching of the Mosaic Law. Matthew 22, Jesus is asked, What is the greatest commandment of the law? And he answers, saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He quotes, in other words, first Deuteronomy 6.4, and then second Leviticus 19.18. So this is the royal law. This is the summary of the law from Jesus. The command that we are to obey first and which even governs all the rest. James says, look, if you try to obey the law, you're doing well. He says, but here's the problem. If you go and obey that command, you know, maybe you do go and give your things to the poor, for instance, but then you turn around and you discriminate against the very brother that you just shared your things with. He says, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what good you try to do for your brother, your partiality wipes out all of it. James explains why in verses 10 to 11. He says, understand, the same lawgiver stands behind all of the laws 
that flow out of this supreme royal law. So if you keep 99% of the law, but then falter on just one point, doesn't matter. You're still sinning against, sinning and standing against this lawgiver as one who is a transgressor of the law. Again, you guys understand how this works, right? If, if a cop pulls you over for speeding, you can't go to the judge and say, but judge, you don't understand. I had my seatbelt on. My car was registered. I had my insurance card with me. You know, I wasn't speeding when I came down that same street last week. Right? Like, you could try that, but it won't get you anywhere, right? Because the expectation, even in our own society, is that we must keep the entire law in order to be blameless. That's why we even simply refer to it as the law. When someone fails to pay their taxes, we don't say they broke a law. No, we say they broke what? The law. That's because we understand, even by our own cultural standards, that blamelessness requires that we keep all of the laws, not just most of them. And that's James' point here as well with this sin of partiality. It doesn't matter if you try to keep the really big parts of the law while supposedly uh, ignoring the supposedly smaller portions because those smaller portions still matter. They still reflect the overall nature of your relationship with the lawgiver. It's like I said back towards the beginning of this passage. The one who does not do, they'll be condemned not simply because they do not do, but because their failure to do reflects that they do not truly believe. And that's what James says here as well. To keep the whole law and to fail at one point demonstrates that this person in question is a transgressor of the law and therefore accountable for all of it. It doesn't matter if the offense is big or small. Either way, it reveals that the person in question stands in opposition to the king. And with that in mind, James concludes this section by saying, verses 12 to 13, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The law of liberty, once again, is this standard that flows out of the gospel. And the idea is, Christian, do you want to be judged according to this standard when you stand before God? Do you want Him to judge according to your merit? Do you want Him to judge you according to what you're owed based on your efforts to keep His commands perfectly? Do you want Him to judge you according to what you deserve? Or do you want to receive mercy? Do you want to be judged according to the foundation that's been laid in Christ? He says, because if you want to be judged according to this second standard, then you need to live in accord with the obligations that flow out of it. And in this context, that means no partiality. You can't make a claim to the righteousness of Christ and then go around judging people according to any other standard. Let me say that one more time. You can't make a claim to the righteousness of Christ and then go around judging people according to any other kind of standard since to do so would contradict the law of liberty and make one a transgressor in opposition of it. This is what James means when he says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He's saying that the one who transgresses against the law of liberty by judging others according to their earthly status rather than by what they are in Christ, the one who holds the poor man's poverty against him rather than by regarding his poverty with the same sort of compassion with which God regards us in our spiritual poverty, he says that person is revealed to be in violation of the law of liberty and will therefore be judged by it. And since they have shown no mercy, they will receive no mercy. The only way to overcome this judgment, James explains, is by showing the same kind of mercy that this standard demands. As I pointed out before, there's nothing about this statement that contradicts the idea of salvation by grace through faith, because James isn't saying that there's any merit in the practice of mercy. His point, rather, is that the practice of mercy reveals what one believes. The one who looks into the law of liberty and sees his face there cannot help but go away and live according to what he saw. But the one who does not practice this kind of mercy, they have either forgotten what they saw in that mirror, or as James seems to imply here, they may never have really seen their reflection there in the first place. 
They'll be condemned, not because of what they do, but because of what, what they do reveals about who they are and what they believe. Consider once again this point, most especially as you reflect upon the way that you show favoritism towards one type of Christian or another. Do the motives driving your discrimination of others align with the obligations that flow out of the gospel? And if not, then what does that reveal about your faith in the gospel? What does that reveal about your position before God? We may think partiality to be a very small kind of transgression. But as James shows us this morning, its implications are simply huge. And because of that, it can actually come with the severest of repercussions. May God therefore grant you the faith to believe this message. And along with it, the mercy which triumphs over judgment. Let's pray.